This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Hauser and Portia Hensley. Welcome to Women in a Day podcast. Today we have our special guest, Susan Bucknum. Susan is a Denver native. She grew up in the mountains of Colorado, hiking, camping, skiing, climbing. She met her late husband, David, when she was 14 on a mountain climbing trip. Susan went to school for primarily science education, and she later ended up working in computer accounting and accounting software. Susan and her husband somehow became involved in the Rocky Mountain Region Porsche Club, and they got their first Porsche, a 1971 911T, which would end up becoming a full-on race car with roll cage, fire extinguisher, and sticky tires. Susan still races Porsches to this day. We have so many things to talk to you about, Susan. You're also a jewelry designer. You're a grandmother. So let's just jump in. Jump in, yes. The, the interest in Porsches came really early. When we were um, climbing in our teenage years, a friend of ours, Tad Frost, he was one of the sponsors of the junior group of the Colorado Mountain Club. So teenagers from 14 to 21 went on these trips to climb or hike or go backpacking or whatever. And we always had to have an adult, air quotes, adult sponsors, which meant someone over 21. So Tad came along on a bunch of our trips, and he had a brand-new Porsche in 1964. And David and I really liked that car. We thought that was really cool. And he lived up Boulder Canyon, um, Tad and he did. And occasionally he would let us drive that car up and down Boulder Canyon. And how old were you at this point? Um, 64. I just graduated from high school, so I was 18. Okay. And David was 20. And so we, we loved it, and we said, we have to have one. So the whole first year I taught, which was in 67, we saved my salary so we could buy a Porsche. And then David said, you know, I really need to go back to school and get a degree in something that I would really like. Because he was teaching junior high social studies, and he was great with junior high kids. But he didn't really like it. So we had all this money saved up, so he went back to school. And you didn't get the Porsche. And we did not get the Porsche. So we've always liked them. And when the kids went off to college and we said, okay, now it's time to play. Now is the time, yeah. <laughs> and a friend of David's, a uh, guy that worked with him, um, was in the Porsche club. And he said, well, here, let me hook you up with some people. So that's how we got the first Porsche 72 911T red Arrest Me Red, we used to call it. <laughs> David actually got a few tickets. I didn't, because I can always go fast at the track. I don't have to do it on the street. And somehow that car morphed from, you know, just being a, something you could drive to work or whatever into the full-on race car. And I'd still drive it to work periodically. And coming into the parking garage, I was working at J.D. Edwards at the time, and so I had to wear dresses and things. And occasionally I'd just drive it to work. And you could see the guys, you know, as I'd putt into the parking <laughs> garage in, with this roaring little engine it had. They'd sort of look and they'd watch. And then I'd get out of the car and they'd go, what? It's a total disconnect. <laughs> total disconnect. And I went, well, you have children and house payments and I have disposable income. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of how we got into it. And we drove that little car 
David passed away in 2004 from melanoma. And I drove that little car for another three years at the track, and I finally said, I need more power. This is a momentum car, so you, you, know, you use every bit of momentum you can get because mm-hmm. it didn't have that much horsepower. And so I sold that one out to a guy in California, and I bought from a guy in California a 1987 911 Carrera, bright red. His name is Bootsy. And he has a license tag that says Bootsy because Bootsy was the nickname of the Porsche brother who designed the shape of the 911. Oh. I believe that's how that went. So his name's Bootsy, and I bought him as a full-on race car. He was, uh, the guy that was driving him was in club racing, which is the wheel-to-wheel version of what I do. And so What is wheel-to-wheel? You're out there with other people passing at will and, you know. Okay. Turkey. So- so, so everybody for time. I do it for fun. I and mean, for when you race, is it just you on the track? No, there the are. Time? It's called high performance driving education, HPDE, or just driver's education for short. And what it is is a way where people can take their cars on the track in a controlled environment and see how fast they can go. And the controlled part of it is the passing part. So we're never side-by-side side through corners. Oh okay. oh, okay. So you can be side-by-side side on a straight, providing it's a passing zone, and you just use hand signals to tell the person behind you that it's okay to pass. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's really a, a cool way for people who don't want to get their fancy little cars dinged to go play. Do you actually race? Is there a competition, or you're just out there? There used to be a competition. Okay. Um, the The region hasn't done a competition, I guess, in ten or twelve years. I guess the just the keeping track of it was getting to be a bit much, and they were tired of people complaining. Well, his engine has this, and he's cheating because his suspension is this way, and it's like stop it, you know. So they stopped the competitions. That's fine. It's still fun to go out and see how fast you can go and see if you can beat your own time. And if you have a friendly rivalry with somebody else, you could chase them or they can chase you. And it's it's really (laughs) an awful lot of fun. So one of the craziest things that I think you did, you and David had this plan to do, you were going to drive. Yes. One of the Porsche Club meetings, someone came and talked about this event called Targa which is a race. Targa, I think, is plate in Italian, and they started a Targa Monza or Targa Italia. And it was a road rally race. It was timed segments. So you'd have cars lining up, and they'd go off in 30-second intervals, and whoever got the best time over the six days was the winner. And we thought, gosh, that would be really fun. And then we thought we could never get the car to Australia to do Targa Tasmania, which was the one that this guy came to talk about. It'd be better just to buy a car in Australia, race it, and then sell it and come home. Oh, wow. And then we found that... <laughs> I, love the, I love the logic behind mm-hmm. all this. Well, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's such a crazy thing, but I love that it's well thought well, out. Well, you know, why not? <laughs> when else are we going to do stuff like this? And then we heard, David heard, that there was one in Newfoundland. And he said, well, it's on the continent. At least we should go. So we thought, okay. And so we planned to drive our 1964 356 Porsche, which are the old bathtub Porsches. We were going to drive it to Newfoundland, which having been there is a crazy idea. 
but we were going to leave like three weeks to get there and it would have taken that long. And so we were set to go. We sent our registration fee in and this was for 2004. So this was in September of 2004. Sent our stuff in. We got the car all ready. David had as many spare parts as he knew how to change and fix. And the front of the car was just packed. We were ready to hop in. Uh, he had melanoma and was, had been in treatment for a couple of years. And at his scans, they'd found that his cancer had gone into his brain and they needed to do something about that. So we ended up not being able to go. And then David passed away that November. And So when was this that this you were was, planning on leaving? We were planning on leaving um, the first part of September. And he passed away in November. He passed away that November. Wow. Yeah, once the cancer got into his brain, it was pretty much... Although he was in the car driving the end of October. Wow. Wow. Yeah, he had a blast. We had to help him into the car, and we had to help get him out of the car. But he drove, and he had a blast, so... How much earlier before was the cancer diagnosed? I think it was 2002. He did a lot of experimental treatments chemotherapy because they really didn't have much for melanoma at that point. The treatments are progressing and having more success now, which is really good. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, well, he was a, you know, one of those white blondes when he was little, and we spent literally all the time in the mountains. Yeah. In the sunshine, because back in the 50s and 60s, sunscreen was zinc oxide on your nose. Right. That was about all you got. Yeah. And we skied and we climbed and we were always up high in the sun. Mm -hmm. So it's not really too big a surprise. So we tried to make everybody wear sunscreen. Yeah. (laughs) Had he had other skin cancers before? No. Just that moment? No, his his hairdresser, our hairdresser found it, found a little mole on his head that was changing and she said you should probably have your skin doctor check this out really really i did not know that yeah so yeah so he he did so anyway that took care of target newfoundland for 2004 and still continue doing porsche club things because they're great friends and great support and at a party I guess, you know, end of the year, maybe a Christmas party or something. My friend Martha was standing in another room, and she said, gosh, it would really be fun to do Target Newfoundland. I perked up a little bit, and I raised my hand, and I said, hey, Martha, I've got a car. (laughs) And we started talking about doing it. And being the organized thing that I am, I put together a spreadsheet of, all right, what are all the things we're going to have to do Mm -hmm. to get the car ready to go, to get us ready to go? How much is it going to cost? Right. You know, she was about ready to put a kid into college. So it was like, yeah, money is, you know, and it's like, well, when else are we going to do this? And so we put together this spreadsheet. We talked to the mechanic who takes care of um, my Porsches, and, and he said, well, we'll need to raise it up a little bit because it's too low, and we'll need to have this and that. And I said, wait a minute, I'm running in the stock class. So the things we do to the car have to be what the car could have come with when it was new. So we can't get wheels and tires that are too big. You know, they have to be one of the two options that were available that year. Oh, wow. And we were talking back and forth with the race scrutineer in uh, Newfoundland. They're the people that make sure that the cars are as they are supposed to be. 
and they scrutinize the cars. Oh, I'm sure they're meticulous. <laughs> they are. Let me tell you, because people gripe and moan about, oh, he's got this and he's got that. And I didn't want to mess with that. So we were talking back and forth. And I finally told this guy, who, whose name was also David, I said, you know, we're not in this to win it. We're coming to have a good time and yeah. to just do the event. So trust me, we're not going to be that competitive. It's the truth of a lifetime. It's just we're coming to play. Yeah. I want to be in in that particular class. And, you know, if, if it's too much, then, you know, we'll go in another one. It doesn't matter. So we made our list and we talked to the people and Martha was going to be the navigator because she'd never driven my car before. Was and it the same car that you were going to use? No. No, okay. this was the 1987 911 Carrera. The 356. The Bootsy? Bootsy. This okay. is Bootsy, yeah. The 356, the car that we were going to go in, I still have. How many it, Porsches do you have? I have three. I have had eight. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I have three right now. <laughs> I only have a three car garage. I was going to ask you where you parked them. That's just three. Yeah. <laughs> So we got everything together, and we, we looked it up, and we thought, this is how much it's going to cost. Which was? Can you share that? Uh, it was a total of around $25,000. To get the car ready to, to for get the trip costs. The trip costs, driving suits. We'd have well, to driving go to... Driving suits? Oh, yeah. You thing. have to have the full-on uh, Nomex suits. And Fire that, protection, um, helmets, communicators. Oh, wow. Because you're in a very loud car going over gravel, paved Were all the teams two-person teams? Yes. All so two you always person. have, you a, have a driver and a navigator. Okay. The navigator reads the instructions. How long is the course? They're very different. So in the six days we were there, we did rally school two of the days, one in the classroom, Half of the next day, we were actually out on the courses. And they shut down the roads, and it's from point A to point B. And that could be, you know, a 10-minute, 6-mile or something stage, or it could be a 20-mile stage where you're trying to go as fast as you can. With lots of turns? Like, do you really need the navigator? You have to have the navigator because you come to an intersection in a town, and you don't know where to go. Hmm. And this is pre-GPS, pre... But you couldn't tell where the road was shut off? Really use a GPS. No, but I'm just saying, so she had... She had pace... They're called pace notes. Okay. And they list every single turn that is out of character with the main road. Oh. Which is also a little interesting. But she had to learn how to read those, and I had to learn how to follow her directions. The funniest part, I think, was when we'd gotten there. We shipped the car, and we had the the pace notes for a lot of the stages ahead of time so we could study. And Martha pretty much wouldn't let me look at them because <laughs> that was, that her, was job. her job. Yeah. My job was just to <laughs> look where we were going and drive. And I finally told her we were driving next to the ocean, and I said, I have to tell you, I hate driving next to water. It really scares me. And she said, well... I guess I should have told you before that I'm not really good with left and right. <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, this is going to be more fun than we thought it was going to be. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> we had an in-car video. There's only one instance where on the video she's saying, in 100 yards, turn left. And I'm pointing to the right because I know we have to go right. Because the, the end, I can see where the end is. 
And I just pointed, you mean that right? And she said, oh, yeah, that one. (laughs) (laughs) And we got there. uh, We took some of David's ashes with us. Hmm. So we had his ashes in the glove box. And that was that was really kind of fun and that was our story pretty much was we came to do this in honor of David and you know to have a good time did she know David oh yes yes she knew David and so our goals for this were to finish no car getting upset and to take the car home in the same shape that it came Mm -hmm. and to stay friends Because typically when someone's telling you what to do and you're not sure that that's what you really ought to be doing, right? rally partners can get really upset with one another. So how many did you hit out of the three? All of them. That's wonderful. Everybody, there were pro drivers in this rally. There were amateurs that wanted to become professional drivers in the rally. Everybody was absolutely delighted. We were only the second all-girl team that had ever done this. And most of the women that were there, there were like three or four others, but they were navigators. They weren't drivers. Oh. And so it was like... Were there only... There's a bit of irony two. in that, that the women are the navigators well, for the yes. male drivers. <laughs> Ask directions. Yeah. I don't have to. I'm telling you where to go. So there were only two female drivers in that, or were you the only female driver? I was the only woman driver. Yeah. Wow. Is that no. the same in your Porsche club? No, actually. Our region um, has the largest number of women who do high-performance driver's education. We also have the largest number of club racers, the gals that do the wheel-to-wheel racing, than any other region in the country. And part of that is because, gosh, long time ago, it's been almost 20 years, I think, since um, a group of us got together. We were wives of men who drove, and we drove. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wouldn't it be fun just to have all girls on the track? And then you don't have to watch out for the guys and the testosterone, which sometimes comes into effect when you're in a fast car. So we got together one night out at Second Creek Racetrack, which was out on Tower Road. It's not there anymore, but it was one of our close tracks. And we had a ladies' night because they were open for free from like five at night till dark. And this was in the middle of the summer. And we said, let's start ladies' day where just the ladies come out, and they can try it out. Yeah. You know, if they're too intimidated to, you know, drive their husband's car, they can bring the car that they drive every day, and they can learn how to drive better. We'll have instructors for them, and we still did it. That was the uh, the race that I was talking to you about mm-hmm. um, earlier up on Table Mountain. The uh, CSP we, track? Yeah, the CSP track. Oh, they let you race there? Yeah. Well, wow. we pay them to race there but right. yeah <laughs> it's a great one though yeah. because it has all of the elements of a real roads mm-hmm. so you've got humps in the middle you've got right angle turns you've got bumps that you go over and it's, it's a great really, track. really fun so there so, are a lot of rattlesnakes on that track yes we had actually had a baby deer born in the middle of the track oh. once when we <laughs> had to had to shut the track down and get the EMTs to carry it over to its mom who's on the other side of the road. Well, at least you didn't Rattlesnakes hit on the track? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've killed my share. Wow. Yeah. you got to well, be careful. Yeah. If you get out. So I think people that just meet you, <laughs> you know, it, I'm sure it is a disconnect. When you actually learn your story, you've been doing 
sort of crazy things your whole life. And Been doing non-traditional yes. things. Well, one well, thing that I yeah. know that I think is, you can categorize as a bit crazy. So there's a mountain here called Capitol Peak. Oh, yeah, that one. And people regularly die climbing mm-hmm. Capitol Peak. And yeah. you did it when you were 14? Yeah, it was my first 14er. With the junior group of the Mountain Club. I've been going through photos to make, like, scrapbooks for the kids. Yeah. And I came across one of our friend Paul Boner on the knife edge at Capitol Peak, which is usually where people get killed. It's just, a, it's literally a knife edge oh, for yards and yards. My heart is racing just yards. thinking about, like... And he's just up on top of it walking. No rope. No nothing. I mean, we were doing silly, stupid things because we were teenagers and we were immortal. Um, I scooted across it on my butt. <laughs> but, you know, none of us were roped. We were careful. I know neither David or I really did things that we didn't think were safe. But we did a, an awful lot of climbing. It was climbing every weekend in the summertime, a two-week outing at the end of the summer before school started again. And then we'd ski in the wintertime with the juniors and just with friends. And you just went to public school. Where did, how did you get yeah. into this group? Oh, that's a wonderful that's story. that's not typically a public My school story. My grandmother was a sponsor of the junior group of the Colorado Mountain Club when my mother was a teenager. Oh, wow. And so I ran across a photo of my mom the other day on a rock climb. It's basically air and my mother on rocks. It's great. And I have photos of my grandmother and my mom when she was about 13 skiing up at uh, Berthoud Pass. And so we always, from the time we were little, camped went hiking, went backpacking, we skied. So you had some great female role models. Absolutely. Who was your grandmother's female role model? Or uh, how did Her she, mother. Her mother was doing that stuff? My great-grandmother was a rancher's wife, hmm. and she could do anything. I remember when my children were six and seven, maybe, going over to Nana and Graham's house, and Graham would make soap with us. Out of Graham was your great grandmother. Graham was like my great grandmother and my your... kid's great great grandmother. Wow! They knew her, which was really really cool. That's she was ninety six when she passed. You've got some good genes. In your yes, family. I'm going to live a long time. I have to take care of myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> your that, mother is ninety seven. My mother is ninety six. She'll be ninety seven in November, I think. No, she'll be ninety six in November. Um, so good genes. And adventuresome ones. So your great grandmother got into the out, or your the outdoors and well, skiing and she was she was just, you know, just out, outdoors wife. just by the you know by being a rancher's wife. Mm-hmm. So she did lots of stuff. I don't know how my grandmother got into skiing and all of that kind of stuff, but she was an outdoor lady as well. Wow. She during the the war she was one of the welders in the shipyards. Uh, in Long Beach, I think. Wow. She did stuff. She always took classes at Emily Griffith Opportunity School. She learned how to do decoupage. And so I have a little sentimental box that she made with our wedding invitation on it, velvet lined and little pearls in it and everything. It's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. She learned how to make lampshades. I think there's only one left because the silk just crumbles with age after a while. Um, she was a licensed practical nurse. And when she was in her late 70s, 
She was taking care of people who were her age because they couldn't do much and she could do for them. So great role models. Um, Did never... you say you have sons now? <clears throat> I have two boys, yeah. Two boys. So you, you didn't pass on the, the amazing women. She's no. got it in spades with her granddaughters. And granddaughters, so. let me tell you, they're, they, yes. they're pretty swell. They like they, to do yeah. the adventuresome they stuff. Are, and... They are on it. They will carry on that tradition, yeah. I'm sure. Piper wanted to drive my car, the race car, and I said, when your legs are long enough, I'll let you. Unfortunately, <laughs> Piper is now taller than I am. Her <laughs> legs are longer than mine, but she's only 14, so I can't teach her to drive the race car quite yet. Wow. Soon, though. That's a good grandma. So were there other women and girls when you were doing all the mountaineering stuff as a teenager? There were, there were four or five of us in this gaggle of boys. And we just sort of did things as this gaggle of people. And I just sort of drifted towards David. He was just kind of the one that that was going to be mine. You know, that was just, I don't know how I knew did that. Did other people couple up as well? Sort of, um, but not long term. So you met when you were 14, and yeah. then when did you get married? Uh, he asked me to marry him at the Crimson and Gold Bar on my 18th birthday over a pitcher of beer. Wow. And gave me my engagement ring that Christmas, and my mother mumbled something about there will be no teenage brides in the family. And I said, okay, we'll wait till I'm 20. And a month after I turned 20, we were married. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you two were cut from the same cloth for sure, because he had the same aspirations to be out doing adventurous things. He was more adventurous than I was. I, the sailing thing that. blew my mind. So you should talk about his sailing. sailing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was working for a little computer company um, doing training on accounting software. And one of the programmers said, hey, we're, we're getting together this sailing trip. Do you, you and David want to come? And I went, I'll ask him. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, let's go sailing. So we went. <laughs> and it was a one-week trip. Um, in the British Virgin Islands. I don't like the heat. I melt when it gets over 70. And I'm allergic to the sun, basically. I have my dad's red-headed skin without the red hair. So I was hot, but it was fun. And David just fell in love with it. Was he a Colorado native? Not a native, but he, li he lived here from the time he was 10. So he was a mountain guy. Yeah. Yeah, but he learned outdoors. to love the ocean. And, yeah, the sailing thing, it, it just called to him. And so he went back. I said, you know, I'll come occasionally, but it's really not my thing. And so he went and got his papers so that he could bear boat. He could captain a boat up to 50 feet in sight of an island. No open water stuff. Every year from then on, and sometimes twice a year, he would go sailing with a bunch of friends or he'd crew for somebody else. And I'd go occasionally. We took the kids occasionally. We did the last sailing trip to Antigua and Barbuda the January before he died. So the boys came and David and me and a friend of the boys, Nick, and had a marvelous time. It was a great, great sailing trip. Do your boys have the adventure spirit that you two have? They do. They do. Right now, you know, they're in the throes of the children. 
the activity years, we the call acti- them. Oh, my gosh. Yes, the, with all the things that the kids do. So, yeah. But they're they, both truly Renaissance men. Like, they both are capable in that way, building things, making things. Yes. Uh, you know, they they have your same, and David's just kind of inherent curiosity about life. Yeah, and let's go do something, you know. Let's take a European vacation next year, or let's do something out of the ordinary. Yeah. Do they ever race Porsches? They love driving my car. Okay. <laughs> they love it. It was so sweet this year. Uh, there was one that I wasn't. I was going to be out of the country for, and I said, "If you two want to take Bootsy out to the track, have at it." And Alan, it was so sweet. He texted me back, and he said, "You know, I've realized that the fun in going to the track is going with you." And I thought, oh, be still my heart. That's sweet. <laughs> That's very nice. And so in October, there's the end of the year driver's education. And if it's not snowing, we'll go. And I'll drive my new car, and the two of them will drive Bootsy. What's your new car? It's a 2014 Porsche Cayman S. It's the one of the last years of the flat six engines before they went to strange little turbo things. But Which is a good thing. I, li- I like flat six engines. Yes, I think they're f- they're really nice. People- I couldn't tell you why, but I do. <laughs> okay, I have no idea. Do so, people ever try to race you at a stoplight? No, but I have people coming up all the time, and especially in the race car because it's got numbers and, and all that okay. kind of stuff on it. And they'll look, and it's kind of the double take, and then they say, "Nice yeah. car!" And it's like, yeah, usually <laughs> eleven and twelve year old boys on the side of the wave and jump up and down. And, oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> So what, I mean, there's so many fascinating things about you, but, you know, you and David, you had a very clear idea of what your retirement years would look like. And it seems like you two were both really working towards that. So you could have all this free time to do all the things that you plan on doing. And in a sense, the rug was really ripped out from under you with his death. Well, in a sense, however, we never didn't do something. Yeah. We always figured out a way. Okay. We went to Disneyland with the boys cuz you know, they always ask, when can we go to Disneyland? When can we go? And it's, yeah. I finally just said, when you're 10, at which time Peter piped up and said, uh, when Alan's 10 or when I'm 10. <laughs> <laughs> I said when Alan turns 10, we can go. And so Alan turned 10 and it was like, so, Disneyland? My like, bag is packed. Damn, they 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 remembered. So we had to go. And so we went in, in the February the next year, and we'd stop at a motel, and we'd check to see if they had the electronic credit card stuff because our credit card was maxed out. You know, <laughs> and in those days, maxed out meant, a, you know, 1000 or $2,000. That right. was it. And if they didn't have the electronic thing, then we could stay there. Because, because it would take time. For it would it take to... time for them to figure it out. So anyway, <laughs> David drove out. And I flew out with the boys. And that was, I think, their first plane ride. We always did stuff when it presented itself. The The biggest one was when the kids were like three and four. A friend of ours, Phil, was in the Peace Corps in Afghanistan. And when he got out of the Peace Corps, he called and said, we're doing a six-week backpack through the Hindu Kush. You guys want to come? And we said, Yeah. And I went, okay, nobody's going to take the kids for six weeks. And David sort of said, well, you know, I don't know about the kids. And I said, tell him yes. We'll figure it out. And so Dave said yes. How old were the kids? They were like 
three and four. It was before school started, so it was like there's just no, no way. way they're too too young. Yeah. And I said, "You're going. You should go. I mean, when else are you going to have a chance to do this?" Yeah, that's amazing. And so he sort of looked at me and said, "I'm going to pay for this, aren't I?" And I said, "Oh yes, in spades. You're going to pay for this, but go." Yeah. And so he did, and they had a blast. Did he ever allow you to go? Oh, yeah. And you I, stayed home? You know, if I wanted to do something in particular over a weekend or for a week, it was never a problem. It's cool that you guys always said yes yeah. and figured it out. You say yes and you figure it out. Yeah. Um, unless it's something you really don't want to do. And then you've got really good excuses. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. You know, pick one. But it was always say yes. Uh, we never waited to do things. We went sailing. We did the, you know the car things we went backpacking we went camping even when the kids were little um we founded i don't know if it's still in existence but with the colorado mountain club another couple of couples and us had small kids and it was like i really want to go backpacking and so we thought well let's find a place we can take the kids yeah and we planned a one week 14 mile backpack how old were the kids and how many kids i'm trying to think we had one kid who literally was in a bouncy seat off someone's backpack (laughs) and the oldest ones peter was i think three alan was four were you carrying them no 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 they had to walk at three years old 14 miles yeah. Well, over the wow. course we, of a week. Over the course of a week. Still. So the three. first the first day was a gentle uphill. We started up at Schofield Pass up above Crested Butte. And we walked up a little bit, and then there's this gorgeous valley. You know, we'd walk, and then we'd make snow cones in the snow. And we'd sit down by the stream and paint. And we'd pick flowers. And yeah. David couldn't come on that one because he was working. And so I had uh, my my baby brother, who's 14 years younger than I am, he came as a Sherpa to help carry stuff. And another <laughs> friend of ours came as a Sherpa to help carry stuff. And Scott brought his guitar, and I brought my guitar. And, you know, we'd sing to the kids over the campfire at night. And, you know, I carried three sleeping bags, a tent, my guitar. I'll send you the picture of that, too. Okay. The first day we found a road sign. Load limit, 10 tons. And Scott just picked it up and hung it off his backpack. And so the second day, it was my day to carry it. It's like, <laughs> what's another 15 pounds? It just doesn't matter. At that point, yeah, it just, <laughs> just doesn't matter. go. And so we carried that sign all the way, the whole, the whole wow. time. And it was just a couple, three miles a day. And most of it was downhill with the kids. And getting back up to Schofield Pass, there's a little Jeep road that goes down by the creek from Marble all the way up to the pass. And it was great. So we took the kids backpacking with us. It was funny because school started like the 1st of September on Labor Day back then. And we'd always take the kids out of school the first week of school. And we'd go biking in Yellowstone because there wasn't anybody there. Right. Or we'd backpack around the Tetons. With the kids. With the kids. That's great. Yeah, they had to carry their own stuff. On that very first backpack, they had to carry their own lunch, raincoat, and stuffed animal. All the essentials. Yes, they would still like to only carry their 
lunch their raincoat and their stuffed animals. <laughs> but um, granddaughter Pearl really likes backpacking. She and Alan have been out backpacking. Yeah. She really likes it. So, yep, it's an adventure. And so, you know, when he died, it's, it's hateful. It's crappy. Yeah. It's really no fun. But it's not as though we waited to do things. Right. Like, after we retire, we'll get cars. And after we retire, we'll do this. Which is what so many of us do. So many people do. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, I have friends whose parents have retired, and they say, he doesn't have anything to do. Which is crazy. No hobbies, no nothing. No friends or your friends. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's it's really sad. You have to cast a wide net. You Mm -hmm. you have to have a lot of different groups there to hold you up when things get tricky or just to do things with. Yeah. To keep you excited about being alive. So we were, you know, while it's hateful that he died, I don't regret a moment. And I don't regret that we didn't do this and we didn't do that because we did stuff. How did your life change after he passed away? Oh, geez. Well, they say there are these uh, stages of grief you go through. Yeah. The only time I was ever really angry at him was the first time I had to take the garbage out by myself (laughs) and shovel the snow. It's like, all right, this sucks. (laughs) But, you know, I've got friends. I've got kids that live in town. I see them every week. People are there for you. Mm -hmm. You just move along and we'd been sort of hunting for another house we we bought the house he grew up in from his parents when they retired and it was a tri-level and it was perfect when you had kids Mm -hmm. and afterwards it's just too big and you can't eat sleep and poop on the same level (laughs) and it's like you know there are times like when you have a back surgery or your knee's not working when you need to be able to do all three things in one (laughs) in one area so we've been hunting for a house and didn't find one and I guess it was a couple weeks after he died I was at home going stir crazy and said well I'll just drive around and see because there was this one place we'd looked and thought, well, I'll go see if there are any houses for sale, just for fun. Because mm-hmm. I knew I had to get out of the house. It was just too many memories. Too many memories. And it wasn't, it wasn't organized well. And I was making jewelry at the time, and there wasn't really – I used a sunroom for the workshop, and that was okay. But it wasn't ideal, and I needed to get out of the house. So I did that and went down to this place where we'd seen – houses for sale before and I noticed that right next door they were putting this uh, the second set of patio homes in and I went over and I said okay let's look at a model ranch mm-hmm. I walked into it and I went oh shit it's perfect so I walked around it and thought oh gee you know they say you're not supposed to do stuff for a year afterwards and it's like well I'm never going to pay attention to that anyway. But um, <laughs> it was they say, died. yeah. And so I called the kids and we made a trip down there. I said, Mom, this is great. Yeah. So I called my parents and said, you know, come look. And Mom said, oh, this is perfect. And then I called my siblings and had them go. Most of them are in town. They said, this is really perfect. And so six weeks after he died, I signed a contract to have a house built. Wow. Was it good to have a project to kind of throw yourself into at it that point? It was great, except right away you have to make design decisions about yeah. paint and tile and stuff. And so I had Alan, who is a graphic designer, artist, 
I said, you have to come with me because I'm just going to do something stupid because I have, I have dead brain, you know? And you don't think clearly. It's really weird. It's kind of like mom brain. Yeah. You know, baby brain. Things are weird yeah. for a while. And so he came and we made the choices and, you know, the house got built and I was over there almost every day taking pictures. So... All right, where's this electrical run grow? What's behind this wall? What's underneath the structural floor in the basement? Because nobody's going to be there to figure that out. Right. After I move in. No, that's a really good point. So I need to understand how the house works. So that's another new adventure. It's like, okay, when my folks moved in with me, I needed to rearrange the the guest bedroom so that we could have a walk-in shower for them. So I took out a closet, took out two closets, and the contractor's going, oh, I don't know what's behind that wall. And I showed him a picture, and I said, here, there is nothing behind that wall. You can take it out. That's and so awesome. I was so glad I'd done that. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, it's like, I don't know what's behind that wall. Right. So yes, the house was a project. The house is an ongoing project, as houses are. There's always a little something to do. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. But you're also now a very successful jewelry designer. I design and I make jewelry. Um, I'm a silversmith, so I use sterling silver and stones, which are a passion. I love rocks from the days of growing up with my dad in the house, who was a mineralogist, as well as kind of a rocket scientist kind of guy. And we, you know, we'd go for a road trip in the car, and it w- we'd stop all the time. You can get garnets over here, or we can, we can get topaz over here. He's a true rock hound. A true rock hound. Oh, I um, love that. So, you know, newer stuff was, I always loved rocks, pretty ones. You know, regular rocks are just rocks, but stones are really cool. Where do you sell your jewelry? I have two Christmas shows, one at the Arvada Center and one at Foothills here in Golden, their holiday art market, and then I have a home show in November. I'm currently in a gallery in Salida, Gallery 150. That's about all I can do because I don't do it full-time. Right. Do you have a website? I do have a website, talismandesign.com. However, it's more of a gallery than anything. The photos I have are really old because I haven't taken photos of my new stuff because I never have time. (laughs) So, yes, we are in that time of the year where I realize I have six weeks until my home show and about six or seven weeks till I have to start getting inventory in for the holiday shows and I'm going okay I haven't made anything since last Christmas it's about time to get to work your jewelry is beautiful and I complimented someone that I knew once about her necklace and she said oh it's from this local person she sometimes does a show at Foothills her (laughs) name is Susan I said say no more is this Susan Bucknam and she said how do you know her? That she's my friend's neighbor, and she does oh, these amazing fun. shows. And yeah, I enjoy doing it. Um, I have some ideas for some new stuff I want to do, and I have about 60 pieces that are in progress, and I've organized them into what bits of progress they're in so I can just pull out a tray and say, all right, today I'm soldering, and today I'm buffing, and today I'm... Where did you learn how to make jewelry? Funny enough, it was a Porsche Club event, and a friend of mine had some earrings on, and I said, oh, my God, Judy, those are gorgeous. And she sort of drew herself up, and she said, oh, I made them. And I went, how did you learn to do that? And she said, I went to Arapahoe Community College oh, wow. and took a class. 
And so I started doing that. She was kind of like an IBM engineer kind of gal. Mm -hmm. You know, smart, techie, and jewelry was the thing that that she wanted to do when she retired. So I thought, I love stones. First night in class, I made a turquoise ring, and I said, okay, this is it. I have stones, I get fire, and I get to hammer on stuff. <laughs> there you go. It's in your it's in your DNA to do those things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Physical stuff is fun. I like doing physical things, yeah. which is, you know, back to kind of what I'm doing at the moment, the working out. I'd let myself go, oh, really let myself go in my 50s. 50s and 60s, and just felt awful. I weighed 240 pounds, and it's like I can't do anything. And one day I couldn't really get up. I could I could get up off the floor, but it was not a pretty sight. And I said, okay, this has got to change. And my daughter-in-law Tiffany was teaching Zumba classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and was getting certified as a physical trainer and those kinds of things. And I said, so, you know, I need to do something. Yeah. I need to be able to go on a hike with my grandkids. I need to be able to do something. So I started working out with her, and she became involved with a studio in 20th and Youngfield called InFit, Inspiration Fitness. And I've been working out with her for three years. I'd gotten down to 207 pounds just with working out alone three days a week and sat there for about a year and it's like all right fine there's there is something to be said about diet and exercise you have to do both you can't just do one or the other and so I started Weight Watchers last year I've lost another 25 pounds and I've added two more days a week of working out so I work out five days a week for an hour at a time either Zumba or weight training I love weight training I'd forgotten how much I loved it. There's, it's so satisfying. Yes, I know. We'll talk more about that. Yeah. Um, and Zumba one day and then stuff we call functional fitness. So movement, increasing your range of motion, increasing mm-hmm. your strength for and your balance. Yeah. And it's just really delightful. I, I love it. I can't not go to my workouts. And you so. feel better. Oh, I feel marvelous. I feel better than I have in years. That's, that's that yeah. incredible. It's it's truly, truly a remarkable thing. So, you know, again, I <laughs> went to my doctor for my physical this year, and she was doing something on the computer, and she looked at me and she said, you know, if I weren't reading that you were 72, I would think you were in your 50s. I totally and agree. And I said, thank you so much. But yes, the number is 72. <laughs> <laughs> And I like the double-take factor. You know, I get out of the race car or I, you know, do something else that people don't expect. You know, they don't expect someone in their 70s to be doing. And I think as we all get older, our brain doesn't really get older. It just gets full of more knowledge and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And our bodies start crumbling around us and we're going, what is this? But even so... You know, I look at my grandmother in her 70s and my great-grandmother in her 70s and the things they were doing, and it's like, well, yeah, they were doing things in their 70s. I look at my husband, David's grandmother, in her 70s, and she was much more sedentary Mm. and, you know, looked like a grandmother in her 70s. 
What is the best advice you've ever gotten? Oh, advice. A rock climbing friend of mine, Phil, his motto was always be ready, and that's true. That's my thing, always be ready. doesn't matter what for. Be ready in a state of mind. Be ready physically. Be ready for Mm -hmm. whatever comes your way. And if it's something you want to do, go for it. Always be ready. If I had a tattoo, that would be it. Why not get one? It's never too late. I know. I've I've thought about it. Where would you put it? it? I'd put it on a really ripped bicep that I've got all this extra (laughs) flab there. You know, it's like, what the hell is that going to look like? (laughs) I think it would look awesome. So we'll see. Susan, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Oh. Any words of wisdom for our audience? or You know, it's live your life. Enjoy it. Learn from other people. Teach when you can. Share everything because people don't have what you have. Mm-hmm. Share it. You'll never run out of stuff to share. It's kind of like you'll never run out of love. There's always love there. There's always more. Yeah. Well, it has been so wonderful to have you on. And you can go to our website, womeninadaypodcast.com. You can see incredible photos of Susan doing all kinds of awesome, inspiring things. And you can also check out our Instagram, too, which is Women in a Day Podcast. Thank you very much, Susan. We appreciate it. And thank you to Tony Tarbox, our editor, and Hillary Blair for helping us with our introduction. 